House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. So now today we've got uh, Lisa Pease. Now thank you for being here, Lisa. Oh, happy to be here. Now her book is uh, it's called A Lie Too Big to... To fall? Is that what it is? To fail. A lie fail. too big to fail. <laughs> Thank like you. Chrysler. Like Chrysler. Thank you. We, you got me. Uh, this is MLK. This is uh, this is my day off. So, But we, we did it special for you. Actually, we had, you know, some of our guests, like I said, Shane mentioned you, and so did uh, that Professor DePaul, DePauli. Um, you might not know him, but he's 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 got a book coming out in April about RFK, but they both mentioned you and your research, so... Yes. Uh, yeah. So I'm well known in the in the very tiny world of RFK research re researchers. Yeah. In the JFK case, there's probably thousands of people who researched that case. In the RFK case, living, there's probably eleven of us. It's a very very small group, so we kind of all know each other. Yes. Why? Well, uh, so I guess RFK just wasn't as big as uh, JFK. So. And by then, uh, people who were looking into the JFK case were so immersed in that and so kind of obsessed, if you will, with that, they didn't want to be smeared as, oh, you think everything is a conspiracy, because you know, a lot of them also looked into the Martin Keith Luther King assassination, but by the time RFK, it was kind of like, this is too many, that one at least seems to be a lone nut, and on the surface of it, of course, it does, you have Robert Kennedy walking into a, a narrow kitchen pantry area. A guy, a young guy named Sirhan Bashara Sirhan steps out, fires gun, Kennedy falls down dead. Not dead immediately, he dies 26 hours later. <clears throat> but it's easy to assume, you know, why would you assume the truth is anything other than you believe? And it took me years to figure out what really happened, because the one fact that's undeniable is that the witnesses who saw both of them and not just Kennedy or not just Sirhan, but literally saw the two of them at the same time, they put Sirhan's gun muzzle two to three feet away. And the police specifically asked where was the gun muzzle. They didn't say where was Sirhan. They, they were trying to figure it out. And they put him two to three away. But the autopsy report puts the shots as coming in from behind Kennedy at a distance of about an inch. And that's a fairly big discrepancy. Point, and point so blank. that, pardon? A point, a point blank. Yes, yes. In fact, Dwayne Wolfer, who was the LAPD criminalist, actually put the distance even closer. He said the gunshots could have been at a quarter of an inch from behind, not the headshot, but the there were he was shot four times, and three of the shots came in from kind of under the arm, that area, and then one of them uh, came right behind his right ear, and all of them were from behind and at an upward angle. And, of course, Sirhan was in front of him. And we know this also because Kennedy threw up his arms in front of his face because that's where he saw the perceived threat. And a number of witnesses saw Kennedy do that. So you don't throw up your arms to your face if somebody's shooting you from behind because you can't see them, right? Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that he saw Sirhan, and that's why he was throwing up his arms. So there's a lot of evidence that whatever happened in the pantry, Sirhan couldn't have killed uh, Robert Kennedy, and that somebody else had to be firing, and that's just that's just the beginning of it because then it gets much more complicated. And I actually uh, there's a boy, <laughs> it's like it's really the reason I wrote the book. Just so you know, the reason I wrote the book is it's very hard to discuss what happened 
in little sound bites and snippets, but I'm going to do my best for your audience. But it is it is very difficult, and I will say things that are going to sound outlandish, and all I can say is go look at the primary evidence I have that supports that. For example, a number of witnesses, and, and by a number, I mean like 8, 10, 12, said they thought Sirhan was firing blanks. And they thought that from the sound and from the look of it, because they saw a visible flame coming from the gun, Rayford Johnson, an Olympic decathlon champion who'd seen a lot of starter pistols, said, yeah, it looked like a cap gun throwing off residue. Norbert Schley, a former uh, assistant attorney general, had been in the military. He's like, I know guns. I know what guns sounded like, and it really sounded like he was firing, you know, blanks. He goes, of course, I realized later it must have been bullets. And that's... That's the key. It's like I, I go by what people's initial reactions are, not that I realize later after everybody else told me what to think. I, I try and leave those statements out, and I go to what their initial impressions were. And if Sir Hill was firing blanks, the whole case actually makes sense. If he was not firing blanks, a lot of things don't make sense. For example, and again, this is going to be really hard for people to believe. In fact, when somebody told me this the first time from her own research, I, I, I was like, that's not true. There's no way that could be true. The police wouldn't do that. But they did. And I found the records that proved it. And what the police did early on, the day of the autopsy, which would have been June 6th, Dwayne Wolfer, this criminalist who worked for the LAPD, he must have realized there was something wrong with the bullets because what he did is he took, he literally forged two of the bullets and took a photo of two fake bullets and claimed it was a comparison of the Kennedy neck bullet and a test bullet. And not only did he do it, there are actually paper records to document and prove this. And they even talk about how we have this photo that we're going to hide and save for a future investigation, but a discerning buff might see the issue with it. I mean, they know they're going to be found out if anybody serious looks into it. And we know the bullets were switched because the base of a 22 bullet is a little bit smaller than a pencil eraser. So you can imagine, you can't fit a lot of letters or numbers on that. It's really <laughs> tiny. And so to, uh, the coroner, Thomas Noguchi, when he retrieved the bullet, he wrote on it TN for Thomas Noguchi, 31, the last two digits of the autopsy case number. And he testified to that at the grand jury hearing. They showed him the bullet. He goes, yes, I see my markings, TN 31. And he explained why he wrote 31 and so on. And in the in 1975, there was a reinvestigation of just the ballistics evidence because by then a lot of the questions had surfaced. A man named Ted Chirac had made a film called The Second Gun, which was uh, very sensational and claimed there was a guard at Kennedy's elbow who was in the perfect position to have made the shots from behind while Sirhan was in front. And this film and Paul Schrade, one of the witnesses in the pantry and a friend of the Kennedy's, said, look, you know, there were too many bullets. It couldn't have happened the way they said. He tried to sue the city. CBS joined his suit, and that forced a reinvestigation, but they limited it very narrowly to the bullet evidence. So this panel looked at the bullets and found something very interesting. They couldn't match any of the bullets from any of the victims back to Sirhan's gun. They could, however, match three of the bullets to each other, and two of the bullets were these two faked ones in that photograph. And the panel realized one level of deception. They realized, well, they said it was the Kennedy neck bullet and a test bullet, but it's really the Kennedy neck bullet and a victim bullet. 
Hmm. And and they let it go at that. But what no one did, they actually wrote down all the markings on the bullets in their own inventory, but no one ever went and compared that back to the original bullet markings in the police log. Every time evidence is taken in, the police log, not only what the evidence is, but whatever it was marked with. And so the bullet that was taken into evidence for the victim bullet, the Ira Goldstein bullet that was compared with the fake Kennedy bullet, it should have had an X on it, but it had a six. In fact, it had no marking on it, and they put a six on it. The TN31 bullet suddenly had DWTN, probably for Dwayne Wolfer, TN, because he knew he had to put TN on there somewhere because Thomas Noguchi had done it, but obviously didn't either bother to look at the original markings or didn't care, thinking no one's going to get to this level of detail. They literally switched the bullets. Now, why would they switch the bullets? That's if what I was going to Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing. It's like, it's not just that they switched the bullets. It's why they switched the bullets. The reason they would switch the bullets is because they had uh, bullets that weren't going to match each other. They came from different guns. And so it was very important they all came from the same gun. And you have to know if they had known sooner and if Kennedy had died sooner, they would have used Sirhan's gun, fired some extra bullets, and made it all match up. But the problem was, by the time Wolfer knew there was a problem, Sirhan's gun had already gone into evidence at the grand jury and was out of his reach. So he couldn't use the Sirhan gun to fake it. So he had to get a different gun. And interestingly, in the trial, he talks about finding a gun with a very close serial number and doing some tests with that. And in 1975, there was a defect when the the panel, when they examined bullets, and I know this is technical and in the weeds, and I'll, I'll back up in a second, but I think it's a really important point. When you look at bullets, there's little tiny uh, furrows and you know rows on it from imperfections inside the rifle barrel. As the bullet is fired, a little speck of metal hanging out at the top is going to groove the, you know, create a little mark on that bullet. And if you could find a gun with a very close serial number, it might have similar markings. And that's kind of what the panel found. Like, well, it doesn't, we can't exactly match it to Sirhan's gun, but it is similar. <laughs> and I'm like, well, similar is not the same. Well, well, and, so, yes, go ahead. Let, let, let me jump in here for just a moment. There, there's two important points that I want to cover, and I, I think you've, you've kind of circled around them. Um, to me, a big detail is the distance that he was from the weapon when it went off. Right. Um, you know, whether it was three feet or, you know, three quarters of an inch. Um, gas expansion, difference. whenever somebody has a close, you know, a point-blank gun wound, there's gas expansion under the skin. Was that ever mentioned in the autopsy report? Because if it was, that definitely puts it at point-blank. Rather than trying to go by eyewitnesses, well, this guy saw this, this guy saw this, you know, three feet away, you know, one inch away. The, you know, what did the autopsy report say about gunshot residue or gas expansion? Well, you're you're really doing two things here because one, what witnesses say does matter because. The way you framed it, it's almost like you're back-solving. You're saying, well, if the bullet came from a three-quarters of an inch away, then Sirhan had to be three-quarters of an inch away. And that's in, in math, that would be illegal. That's like back-solving. That's starting with your formula and then rigging the numbers to fit into that formula. And so we, we really can't talk about it that way. Yes, there was the powder burns and the tattooing. And you know the medical evidence is very, very clear that the gun was that close. 
And the witnesses are also very, very clear that Sirhan was never that close. Now, that doesn't mean another gunman wasn't that close. Obviously, some gunman was that close. But it literally couldn't have been Sirhan. And not only that, it's not a gun that witnesses just saw Sirhan at the time of the shooting. There were a couple who had literally followed him to his position with their eyes. They were watching him cross the pantry. So it's not, and you know, they, he just kind of drew their attention for two very different reasons. One was a woman, one was a man. They had different reasons for watching him. But both of them saw him cross over to Kennedy, reach out his hand, and they thought he was going to reach out to shake his hand. Well, if he's behind him, that wouldn't make any sense, right? Or if Kennedy has back, right. that wouldn't make any sense. He's well, obviously I, I, reaching out. But So I, I just want to make the point, because they tried to do that in the trial. They tried to oh, say, well, because the gun was only an inch away, then therefore Sirhan had to be an inch away. Oh, and, and, I'm and not that's what faulty lodge. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not trying to put the gun in anybody's hand, because you know I, I'm leaning towards what you're saying, actually. That the, it's the closeness of the weapon, not necessarily, you know... Right, regardless of who's holding it, yes, medically proven, yes. Medically, ballistically, scientifically proven to be that close. Okay. So, now, now, with the bullets themselves, um, I guess three of them got into the body, one into his clothes. Um, so you're saying it didn't match their hand, and they've changed the bullets before the examination, like in 75. Right. But, but what I'm trying to figure out, the first thing that comes to my mind about that would be, um, first of all, who they are, so they're police, obviously, but why would they do that if they weren't involved? Ah, very good. And let's look, let's look at the most innocent explanation, because I always want to start from that point. Here the police are. They've got the crime of the century on their hands in their city, and they've only got one suspect, but it's clear that at least two guns were used. What are they going to do? Well, Inspector Powers gets on the radio and literally tells them what to do. While there were six different suspects on police radio, people don't know this. It's in, it's in my book for the first time. Literally six different suspects on police radio in the first hour and a half. Because after that, I don't have a transcript, so there may have been more, but that's in the first hour and a half alone, there were six completely different suspects, only one of which was Sirhan. And so Inspector Powers gets on the air and he goes, all right, well, we've got Rafer Johnson here, and he says there was only one shooter, and let's not get anyone started on a big conspiracy. And so that's a very simple thing. It's like, oh, you've got a witness who says it was only one guy. Okay, great. All these other people are just wrong. And that was kind of the pervading view initially and anybody who said something otherwise the police just kind of waved it off because you know the top guy had told them hey this is our story and looking at it again from the police view do you want to go to the public and say well we got one of them but it's clear it was a much bigger conspiracy but we don't know who they were we can't find them they, they eluded us it's it's a terrible PR thing. <laughs> you know, it's much easier to say, we got a guy, this is the guy. This is the guy, no matter what the discrepancies, he did it all, and we'll just wave all the other evidence away, and the press will help us, because historically the press have, for the same reason. It's not a good look for democracy to go around and having big leaders killed, you know, by conspiracies that go unrevealed. It's much, it's much calming, it's more calming to the public to say, hey, there was only one guy and we got him, go back to sleep, America, we have you covered, everything is okay. And it's certainly much more um, pleasant to believe. You know, who wants to believe that, you know, there are these hidden forces working to subvert our democracy right here in our own country? The that's not state. a, I, yeah, that's not a fun belief <laughs> to me. It's been a very, and, and people who read this for the first time, you know, a lot of them feel a little depressed because it's not the country 
they thought they had. And, you know, I don't want to depress anyone. I want to empower people. Let's let's drop a little bit of that Disney view of our world because we all want to think we're a little better and a little brighter and shinier than we really are. And let's deal with kind of the nitty-gritty, dirty reality of the darker side of what happens in this country. So Nobody's perfect. To, no country is You're trying to tell me that America was never great? <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> That's it. Uh, I'm getting my hat out. It's great in video. size. <laughs> it's great in influence. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's been great to me. I have a great life. You know, it's like, but a lot of people in the world don't, and partly because of America. But oh, yeah. Let's not sure. go there right now. <laughs> no, no. That's that's a whole other week on shows. That's, now, you, know, right. you, talk, you talk about the bullets and that. But now, okay, when we come to Sirhan Sirhan himself. Now, um, mm-hmm. in other conversations, so how does he fit in? <laughs> yeah, well, in, in, well, other conversations we had with other researchers, they all either they believe he did it, or they believe he was involved, or they believe he was under some sort of hypnosis, MK Ultra sort of thing. And I know his lawyer Perry has hired, you know, that that uh, what is he, psychologist, or he's hired someone to. Yes, his lawyer, William Pepper, hired one of the foremost experts in hypnosis in America who actually writes textbooks on the subject, Dan Brown. And he hired him, and he, sp- he spent many hours with Sirhan because the original, and, and by the way, yes, I believe, again, from not only the witness evidence, but everything that happened after that, I have a, it's probably the biggest chapter in my book is called Mind Games. And it's about not only why it seems obvious to me from my research that Sirhan was under hypnosis, but also how hypnosis has been misrepresented in the media, what it can and can't do. But during the trial, his lead attorney hired a hypnotist to try and get Sirhan to remember. In 1968, believe it or not, that was actually super common. You can look through the newspapers at the time, and there are many cases where hypnotists were brought in to try and get their people to remember. The problem is, Sirhan's hypnotist at that time, he didn't say, what do you see? What happened? He said, Kennedy is walking towards you. Reach for your gun, Sirhan. You know, I mean, he's trying to, like, almost implant a memory. It was was frankly appalling. And so if you read what Dan Brown's transcript is, it's just the opposite. It's like, what do you see now? Where are you? Is anybody around you? What's happening? What do you see? And then what happens? So he's not leading the witness. He's just letting it unfold. So in my book, I actually quote extensively from those transcripts because according to those sessions, Sirhan was deeply attracted to this woman in a polka dot dress. He felt she had this sexual vibe going. He literally thought he was going to get lucky that night. He said that on tape. (laughs) And uh, so he was following her around like a puppy dog. You know, he's a small immigrant, you know, doesn't know a lot of people. And here's this beautiful woman Sexy, voluptuous. Everybody commented on her the voluptuousness of her figure, which I kind of took to mean a big chest, if you will. Uh, <laughs> so, well in uh, doubt. She, yes, well in doubt. That's the right. That's the right thing. So, whatever it was, I was totally into this woman. He followed her around. She took him into the pantry. She put him up on the tray stand. Uh, where you would get a little bit of an elevated view, make it easier to see Robert Kennedy coming in because you could see above the crowd. She stood up there behind him, and as one witness said, it was almost like she was holding him there. And then at uh, a pinch of her, you know, at, uh, how do I want to say, she looked up to her right, and I believe I know what she was looking at, and that's in my book, uh, 
as Robert Kennedy started to come into the room and they walked to the middle of the floor and then she touched him in a certain way and suddenly he felt like he was back at the target range. He'd spent six hours that morning at a target range, you know, in the Imperial Valley here, uh, firing at targets. And at the touch of her, it was like he was back there in what I would call a hypnotic illusion. And I didn't know these things existed until I witnessed this myself. I I spent like two or three years, and I tried to go to every hypnosis show I could. And it gets kind of expensive, so I didn't go to too many. But at one of the first ones I went, the hypnotist said, please don't talk to the people after they come off the stage, and if you do, you'll see why. And I thought, well, that's a weird statement. So, of course, I wanted to find people coming off the stage. It's like, why are they weird? And sure enough, I saw one guy come off the stage, and his friends went up to him. He's like, ah, you did really good. You were so funny. You did this and this. And he's like, ah, it's just faking it. And then when they said, and then you said this, he's like, no, I didn't do anything like that. And then I realized he's not faking it. He really doesn't know that's what he just did. So that was one. And then at a different hypnosis show, I sat next to a woman in the front row and talked to her for like 20 minutes, not knowing she was about to be a volunteer on the stage. So it was great because I got this before and after experience. Perfectly normal, you know, nice woman, kind of person you talk to at the drugstore or the checkout line, you know, just very normal, nice, perfectly intelligent, nothing wrong with her at all. She goes up on stage, they hand her like play money, it looked like a bill out of the Monopoly game. And the hypnotist told her it was a $25,000 check. And under hypnosis, of course, she's jumping around and excited because, wow, I just won $25,000. So after the show is over, I wanted to go find the hypnotist. So I lost track of that woman. Um, in fact, I actually looked for her and didn't see her right away. So then I went and talked to the hypnotist and I asked about the Syrian case. And he looked very uncomfortable and kind of ran out of the area, <laughs> which I thought was funny. But then I... I noticed as the crowd was clearing, almost no one was left, but this woman was still there wandering around. And I had a friend with me, and we went up to her, and I'm like, you know, are you okay? Did you lose your family? What's going on? She goes, well, I have to give this back. And I said, but it's just play money. And she goes, no, it's a $25,000 check, and I have to give it back. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I, I said, can I hold this with you? And I, I reached, and I touched the money with her, and I tried to pull it closer to her eyes, and I'm like, can you see that this just says one zero zero? And she's no, it's a twenty-five thousand dollar check. And I gotta tell you, I got chills. I was so disturbed by that. The fact that somebody could do that to somebody else and make them see something that wasn't there. So obviously it wasn't there, not even close to what was there. And that's when I realized that that could have happened to Sirhan. And that he wasn't seeing Kennedy walk toward him. He was seeing a target, a big round target, and firing at it and had no no, no knowledge that he was participating in an assassination. That's what I came to believe. Hmm. Now, isn't it true, though, that in, in hypnosis, I, I'm, I, I mean, I, I believe you, but I don't think it's as common as people think, that in hypnosis, they really can't get you to do anything that is against your internal moral values. Heck, yeah, right. I, I right. want to see a $25,000 check right here, right now. <laughs> but right. I really don't think you're going to convince me to, to shoot somebody. Well, let me give you a scenario that happened just a couple of years ago. Uh, Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of the current uh, North Korean leader, was in an airport. Two women ran up to him. They thought they were part of a TV stud. One woman sprayed him with water, and the other wiped the the water off his face and they had done this to a number number of people somebody pointed out that guy and they ran up to him except what neither of them apparently knew was that one of the towels had 
VX nerve agent on it. When they wiped it down, they basically infected him, and he died within 24 hours. And so then you ask, did the woman know she was killing him? And it's it's kind of an open question, because, yeah, maybe she was in on it, and it was staged, and she was definitely part of the plot, but maybe she was an innocent bystander who really thought she was part of a TV stunt and had no clue that that's what she was doing. And so I think we have to take into account, yeah, you can't make, if you had asked that woman, go kill Kim Jong-nam, she probably wouldn't have done it, right? You know, but if you tell her it's a TV stunt, you're going to make $100, and that's a big amount of money if you're poor, and, you know, blah, 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 not knowing what she's doing. And I quote, there's a hypnotist in my book that I quote about ways you can trick people into doing things against their will. So, yeah, you can't tell, like, you can't put a woman under and say, undress for me. Most women wouldn't do it. <laughs> but <laughs> you put the woman under hypnosis and you say, oh, you're at this beautiful tropical beach. Oh, it's getting warmer and warmer. Oh, my God, you're so hot. And, oh, you know, you, you just can't stand the heat. And the woman starts pulling her clothes off. Well, now she's doing what she would do in that situation. You've just changed the reality on her, like giving her that fake $25,000 bill. So I think that's the kind of the big lie about hypnosis. Yeah, you can't get somebody to do somebody against their will, but you can get somebody to do something without them being aware of what they're really doing. You can trick them in hypnosis into believing they're in a different reality. And that's what it appears happened as their head. He, in, in his mind, boom, he was back at the range firing straight ahead, which maps to what the witnesses saw. He stuck out his gun straight and just fired, fired, fired until he was, you know, captured after the second or third shot, depending on who you believe. Um, and, of course, that's the other thing. Kennedy was shot four times, and Sirhan was literally apprehended at the second or third shot. So how did the fourth shot happen? So and, now, uh, we're, now we're kind of encroaching into the uh, Manchurian candidate. Well, if he were, if he were programmed to kill, that would be like a Manchurian candidate. I like to call him a Manchurian patsy, because I really think, I think it's important to understand that, for example, the CIA had a magician on staff, John Mulholland, that he actually wrote for the CIA this whole manual of deception and trickery, which has some, you know, great little items in it, you know, how they, because almost everything they do, it's funny, it is called the black arts for a reason, and covert operators make good use of it. You have to be able to, like, hide a pill in your hand to drop it in somebody's drink. But he, he also says it's very important not just to trick the eye, but to trick the mind. He said if you trick the eye, sooner or later enough memory is there and you'll figure out what happened. But if you trick the mind, you'll never be able to figure out what the, what the trick really was. And I think it's important that we think of the pantry as a very elaborately staged magic act with Sirhan as the distractor, firing blanks because they actually left a visible trace. It makes it easier to see and spot the gun. It actually makes sense from a conspirator's point of view that he would be firing blanks for so many reasons. First of all, if he's under hypnosis and he's looking at a target, what if he kills your actual assassin before he gets the job done? And what actual assassin would take that gig? It's like, wait a minute, this guy's going to be firing me, he's under hypnosis, he's got real bullets. Ah, uh, no, I'm going to pass on that one. I'm not going to take that gig at all. Uh, you know, so it, it makes sense on, on a number of levels. That, uh, And then, of course, you have to ask, but then where were the bullets that came from Sirhan's direction fired? Because there were bullets fired from about his position. So you can't have it both ways, right? He can't be both firing blanks and bullets. And what I found was there were three super credible witnesses who saw a shooter on the table. One was a fireman photographer who thought it was Sirian. And he's like, yeah, the guy was standing on the table firing down into the crowd. 
And another was George Green, a reporter. And he immediately on camera, on a live interview afterwards, said, yeah, the shooter was firing down from the table. Well, Sirhan wasn't on the table, was never standing on the table at any point. He was pushed onto the table on his belly. Actually, I think it was his back. Yeah, I'm looking back at the, the video now. Yeah, it's like his back was on the table. He was not standing and firing down. He was pinned down to the table. And they kept him pinned until the police came and took him away. So at no point did he jump in and up and fire down. But the people who saw the guy on the shooter said it looked a lot like Sirhan, those who saw his face. There was a third witness who said he had the same color blue on him, but I couldn't see the face. But when he jumped down, and then I saw him captured, then I realized it was Sirhan. Well, but again, Sirhan didn't jump down off the table. So she she somehow in her mind merged the jumping down and the guy who was captured into the same thing. And I found that really common as I went through the record. I, I found where people often saw two people and then in their minds kind of merge them into one, just assuming, because everybody was told over and over there was only one gunman. So whatever they saw in their mind, they merged it into one gunman because that was, that was the realm of possibility. And But if you, again, if you go back to their very earliest statements of what they actually saw, it's amazing how well they match each other, even though these people didn't know each other. None of these reports had been on the radio or TV yet. This was in like the first four hours after the assassination. You know, I, I figure those are the best witnesses. They had no pollution from the outside world. And it's it's really, it was a very sophisticated plot. And that's, again, now now you're out of the realm of just some angry mob guy or something. You know, it's like this was, this was a sophisticated plot. This was something that took a great deal of planning. I have a quote from the Watergate burglars where they say when you have an operation, you don't just do a one-off. You plan it for weeks. You rehearse it. You go over every possible thing that could go wrong and you account for it. And so I think it, we, we need to start looking at this as an actual operation that was well planned. I think the boys from Watergate needed to practice more. There's one author, Jim Hogan, who his theory is that they, the last break-in, they were designing it to get caught. Not all of them knew this, but the lead guy, James McCord, he, he taught the CIA people how to do successful break-ins. He was like their black bag expert. And so how could he tape the door twice and draw the guard's attention unless he was trying to? And there's a fascinating interview with his secretary, an FBI interview, where his secretary's like, yeah, he says goodbye to me every day, but the day before you know, the Watergate break-in, the way he said goodbye, I had this feeling I was never going to see him again. <laughs> so it's like he knew. He knew what was about to happen. Now, now, now we get to the lady with the polka dot dress. Um, mm. Now, she ran out uh, the door after it happened um, and said, we killed him. And we shot him. We shot him. Yeah, right. Some, yeah. We. Now, now Somebody we, said, who, you know, did you mean? And she said, we shot Kennedy and kept running. Now, here's the interesting thing, because, yes, not only, by the way, Sandra Serrano was the main witness on that, but there was another witness. And after three years, I finally got in touch with her. I kept emailing her. She wasn't seeing my emails. And then literally, you know, as I was preparing to send the book to the publisher, she got back in touch with me. I'm like, oh, thank God. I really wanted to talk to this woman above all. And her name was Katie Keir because she was a little further down the stairs where Sandra Serrano was sitting. The Ambassador Hotel was huge, and it straddled 
Uh, most people don't know the Los Angeles area, but if you do, it would, it ran from Wilshire to 8th Street, right through what used to be 7th Street. 7th Street starts and ends on either side of it, but it took up that whole property. Serrano was sitting on the steps on the 8th Street side, so this is the back of the hotel. It's kind of a dark area, and the hotel's a little weird because it sat on a hill, so on the Wilshire side, ground level was the first floor, but on the eastern side, which was Catalina Street, ground level is actually the second floor in the lobby. So I, I call it like an Escher building, <laughs> like an Escher print. But anyway, so this woman in a polka dot dress, Sandra Serrano, a young campaign worker, 20 years old, sitting on the back. She sees three people go up the back stairs and into the Ambassador Hotel through the fire exit, basically. And two, uh, the, one of them was a girl in a polka dot dress. Another was a man in a, some sort of a gold top or gold sweater. And the third exactly matched the description of Sirhan. Of course, she didn't know it was Sirhan at the time because no one knew who he was at that moment. Uh, and she thought that guy looked out of it but not drunk, and she couldn't figure out what the issue was with him. But the three of them go in. Kennedy comes down and gives his speech, and then all of a sudden she hears what sounds like six backfires of a car, and then a few minute, a few seconds later, a girl in a white dress and the guy in the gold shirt come running back out those steps, and the girl is saying, we shot him, we shot him. And Sandy asks, well, who did you shoot? And she says, Senator Kennedy, and they kept running. Well, there was a younger girl, a 13-year-old girl who was just a few feet from Sandy who heard the same thing and reported the same thing. But because she was never made public, the police put all their firepower against Sandra Serrano. So the police took her back to the hotel numerous times, trying to get her to change her story. Um, she got very upset and didn't want to talk to them again unless she had a lawyer present. I don't Somehow you. Hank Hernandez, one of the two um, CIA officers, Manny Pena and Hank Hernandez were in charge of the conspiracy aspect of the investigation. And oddly enough, both had ties to the Central Intelligence Agency. But Hank Hernandez invites Sandy and her aunt, because Sandy wouldn't go with him alone. Um, she's underage. He invites her out for steak dinner, you know, buys her a glass of wine for the underage Sandy. And she's like, it must be okay because he's a cop. And, you know, but what he's doing is he's trying to soften her up, and he doesn't tell her they're going to do a lie detector test that night. And he convinces them to come back to the station. And then Sandy thinks her aunt is going to be in the room with her, but Hank asks the aunt to wait outside. And the aunt does, and I was so mad at the aunt for doing that, because that was the whole reason Sandy brought him up, her along, so she wouldn't be alone. So anyway, now you have this 20-year-old girl who's, you know, a little woozy. She's had some wine. She's got, you know, steak in her, and he straps her into this chair. And even then, she holds her own amazingly well. He runs basically an interrogation session, and it's clear it's like he's acting from the script because when he gets through it and it doesn't work, he starts at the top and starts to repeat himself. And it's it's kind of shocking. And you can tell by the third time this is happening, she realizes she's never going to leave that room unless she changes her story. So she does eventually change her story. Well, I'm not sure what I heard. Well, you know, maybe this. Well, maybe that. And, and you know, until she basically lies enough so that they let her go. And it's really, it's so upsetting that I printed a large excerpt in my book because they didn't just do that to Sandy. They did that to everyone who saw evidence of conspiracy whose name had been in the paper. They wanted to make sure they discredited them all. But if their name wasn't in the paper, they didn't try nearly so hard because no one knew about them. So I have this little Katie Keir. Now, 
here's the big question people say, why would, why would a conspirator run out the back of the hotel saying we shot him, we shot him? That kind of makes no sense, right, especially to a stranger. Well, what I found was there was a guy at the back door in a maroon suit who appeared to be holding a radio to his head most of the night. Two wives, of, by the way, they were NBC producers. <laughs> Two wives of NBC producers just happened to be near that, that exit, and they were watching this man because there's just something a little off about it, and they couldn't figure out what he's doing. And then after the shooting, of course, they don't know yet there's even been a shooting, he turns to them and he said, now you've seen me here the whole time. I haven't left this spot. It's like, like he was trying to establish an alibi. <laughs> And again, at the time he said it, it didn't make sense to them, but then after they realized Robert Kennedy had been killed by then, the man was gone, and they're like, we should probably tell the police about this. And so the girl in the polka dot dress is running right by that guy, and I'm thinking she might have been saying, we shot him, we shot him to him, not to Sandy, you know what I mean? And because he needs to know, did it work, did it not work, you know, he, the, his purpose appears to have been to make sure that exit was available to them, that that door would be open. And uh, so, again, a, a bit of an elaborate plot. And there are a number of people who, by the way, saw either the girl with Sirhan or the guy in the gold shirt with Sirhan most of the night. It was as if they were his controllers on site keeping him, you know, close by so that they never lost track of him. So when the moment came, they would put him in the right spot. I, th I think that that's a little bit um, emotional, but for the girl in the polka dot dress, because if you're a handler, you're probably pretty smart and devious. I, I, that, that sort of still doesn't ring true to me, as running out the door, screaming that, if you were really in well, this big conspiracy. Like it doesn't bear in fit. mind that, right, bear in mind again, first of all, these are all like 25-year-olds. These are not seasoned intelligence professionals who are 50 and get in, do their shot and get out, and no one even notices they were there. And in fact, they were all fairly poorly trained. There were other people I talk about in the book. One guy going around practically bragging like, oh, something big is going to happen tonight, and it's related to what's in this bag here. And, and one guy who saw that bag and heard this conversation said, well, I used to carry a bag like that, and it had a concealed gun in it. I did that for part of my job. There were four different people who tried to sound the alarm on the assassination before it happened. One of them, it appears, was a CIA guy who seemed to have some inside knowledge. I find him one of the most interesting people of all the witnesses, and he's he's barely talked about in the literature. Uh, his name was William Crossan, and he had gone through the hotel earlier that day and gone up to the security people and said, the security seems lax, and Kennedy could be killed here, and they kind of brushed him off like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then he actually went, and he went through the thing, and he drew a map, and he goes, it could happen right here. And I've tried to get a copy of that map, and all the stuff that was related to what he said or what he gave the police is no longer there. There's substitute evidence in those envelopes, because I called the California State Archives numerous times over the course of this. I'm like, can I see Exhibit 53? Can I see this exhibit? Can I see that? And he had actually written a letter to Senator Kennedy supposedly warning him about something, and I tried to get a copy of that letter, and she goes, oh, there's only scraps of paper in the envelope. There's nothing that looks remotely like a letter here. I'm like, well, this is very upsetting because in the log, you know, it says it's a letter. So right. it's, a, again, as if somebody rated the evidence. So my point is that this is a conspiracy that is not well trained, and that's why we're getting exactly. all these weird anomalies. Why, these are why not, like, highly trained professionals. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Lisa, why, with, an, with an assassination of this importance, why would they not use professionals? And if they were training these young individuals. Is there? Does it look around around the scenes? Is 
runs or any kind of trial runs, like unexplained murders. Ah, that, yes. Yes, the kind of, yeah, trial runs, practice trial, runs. Trial runs. There were, some of these people were seen at earlier Kennedy events, and in fact, somebody thought they saw Sirhan or a lookalike at an Oregon event, the previous primary, because Oregon had happened before California. And he said, I bumped into this guy, he looks just like Sirhan, and I felt a gun in his pocket when I bumped into him. And Sirhan was not up there, but there were a lot of Sirhan lookalikes. In fact, there was a guy literally apprehended and handcuffed at the hotel, running from the scene who several witnesses had mistaken for Sirhan. His name was Michael Wayne. Um, so it does appear that there may have been several attempts before this one succeeded. And I think the same thing happened in the JFK case. You know, there was evidently a plot in D.C. that failed. There might have been a plot in Miami that failed. There was definitely a plot in Chicago that failed. And then they finally got him in Dallas. So people go, wow, how could everything go so perfectly? It's like, well, it didn't the first three times. Yeah. And, and I think that's the same thing with this, because provably a lot of this same crew, uh, and again, uh, there's more detail than I'll have time to cover in this hour, but it's in my book. But a lot of the same people who were there at the Ambassador Hotel on the 4th, June 4th, which became June 5th after midnight, uh, were also there on June 2nd, the Sunday before, because Kennedy had spoken there, too, at the Coconut Grove. And a lot of the same people, including a girl in a polka dot dress with the same sort of figure, was there. You know, the voluptuous figure and the funny nose. She, People said funny nose, but it's really, most of them said she had a turned up pug nose. And uh, so that's kind of how you know whether she is or isn't these people that have come forward over the years. They're family members of some people who've said, oh, you know, this woman was the girl in the polka dot dress, and all I have to do is look at her nose and go, nope, couldn't be her, because they all described a really turned up pug nose, and that is not that. Mm -hmm. And they said she didn't have a pretty face, but she had a very pretty body. <laughs> well, well yeah, that's, that's the that's first thing we look at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Mike, and that's what the men remember. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, Thane Caesar, the bodyguard, What's what, what do you think of him? Well, in my book, and uh, this is... This is big. I'm thinking whether I even want to say this on the air or not. Exclusive. I'm not going to say Exclusive. it. I'm going to say that I found his employer, both his employer at the time and his employer for the next many years. And I think it will shock some and validate the beliefs of others. That's all I want to say about that. But he is a very interesting figure. And I had somebody give me a tip that he had actually worked for Bel Air Security at one point. Bel Air Security provided security for Howard Hughes when he was in L.A. before the big move to Las Vegas. And so I went to Bel Air Security, and I tried to get their old employment records, and boy, they're tighter than the CIA. I couldn't get anything out of them. It was very interesting. Oh, no, sorry. Thane Caesar was a security guard. He was private security. The hotel knew they needed to augment the hotel security that night. So the Ambassador Hotel had its own security force. They were wearing brown suits. Thane Caesar was part of a security, and there were, uh, you know, eight or ten. I'd have to look to get the exact count. But there were a handful of additional security, specifically for the embassy room and the Kennedy group because they knew that would be, you know, where they would need the most security. Caesar was stationed inside the ki the kitchen pantry most of the night. So in a way, we can blame him for what happened regardless because it was his job to keep any suspicious characters and certainly people with guns out of the pantry. That was literally his job. And when Kennedy came off the stage and started walking through the pantry, who picks him up at his right elbow but Thane Eugene Caesar, this private security guard. So again, at that point, his touching his elbow and starting to guide him, it became his job 
to get him through the pantry safely. And we can safely say he utterly failed at that job. So regardless of what people want to say or think about Caesar, it's clear he completely failed at his job, if that's really the job he was there to do. Now, if he was not there to do that job, maybe he succeeded. And I really would encourage people to read that part of my book for that that part of the story. Were, were you able to contact him at all? or? No, and according to Dan Moldea, who asks for, I think, $50,000 to gain access to uh, Caesar, which yeah. I find kind of bizarre, um, and I don't have $50,000, I've never had $50,000, I wouldn't even oh. know what that looked like, yeah. uh, I, yeah, but I, I will tell you, I actually did try to contact him anyway, because there are public records, and I found a couple properties he either does or had owned in Simi Valley, and I got one of my friends, and we literally drove up and knocked on the door. <laughs> <laughs> I told only a couple people. I didn't tell my mother. I knew she'd be worried to death all day. And I was pretty sure that he wasn't going to kill me at the doorstep. you know. But I really wanted to talk to him. I really did try. And my friend was like, are we going to get out of this alive? I said, I don't know. Let's find out. <laughs> wow, quite the experience there. So, yes. Um, now, so do you think that the um, uh, Congress will actually reopen this case or not? Ah, thank you for doing that. Uh, just last night, the Kennedy and the King family members have, for the very first time ever, made a joint statement calling for reopening of the investigations of the JFK case, the MLK case, the Malcolm X shooting, which is the least talked about, and the Robert Kennedy case. And in all of them, the, the uh, investigations we've had were provably inadequate and especially in the JFK case, there was a JFK Act passed in 1992 where the CIA, FBI, ONS, you know, every government agency was told you have to release all your records by a certain date. They have failed to do so, and they have failed to justify why they're doing so. And then we have to ask, if we are truly a democracy, who runs the country? It's like, if the people... If, if con the people elect Congress, so there are representatives, if Congress can't get these agencies to comply, we have to conclude that those agencies run the government and not Congress. And that's not a democracy. And that's why this case matters so much. And that's why the King family and the Kennedy family, have, for the first time ever, this is historic. They've joined hands and said, we need the truth. And our country took a dark turn. And we have never fully understood what happened or why. And that's why we need to recover this history. It's as if you went to the doctor and you didn't know your parents' medical history. You know, you don't know if you have, you know, a, a per, uh, you know, a heart condition or not if you don't look for the genetic markers. But if your parents had them, you know, then scientifically you either do or don't, you know, depending on the genetics of the thing. And our history is kind of like our medical history. If we don't understand what happened, we really can't tell what's going to happen next or where we're going. Whereas if we have a clear view of history, we can govern in the present much more effectively. And that's why these cases matter. And that's why I encourage people to read my book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Robert Kennedy, the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Now, do you have a website as well or anything for people to check out? I do. In fact, that statement that I just referred to is at Real History Archives dot blogspot dot com you can see all the signatories you can see the call to action and there will eventually be a petition it just wasn't ready unfortunately for the weekend um, so if you check back on that site maybe in a week uh, there will be ways that people can participate if they want to get to the bottom of our history 
great. Well, we're going to have that linked up to our site as well as your book, and uh, it's all good. So people listening can just do one click and and uh, grab the book, and then you can hey. find out about Caesar. That's <laughs> right. Big 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 surprise there. I don't want to give it all away. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's it's all good. You got to you got to keep a secret here. So <laughs> yeah, I, I've given you a lot, but there's so much more in the book, and yeah. Caesar, he was really a drag queen, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you might be killed. I don't think he'd appreciate that. Well, there you go. Come get me. They have to get through Kevin first. Oh, because <laughs> I'm yeah. lurking in the shadows. Yeah. Oh my. Well, this has been uh, great. Uh, lots of good information, and and I hope people enjoy it. Um, and and pick up the book. You know, it's it it sounds really interesting, and it sounds like you've done a lot of research, and that's that's important. So twenty five years. I think that's the other point I want to make is there's a reason journalists don't tell the truth. They don't have the time. They literally don't have the time. You know, who has twenty five years for a story? You know, I've done this in my off hours for many, many years, and that's why I found as much as I have. Even Shane O'Sullivan, I think he spent three or four years digging into the case. Yeah. It's like I've literally spent 25 years, and that's why I have many more witnesses than other people have found in their books. I've just had more time with the case. Wow. Well, again, this has been great. Thank you very much. Our guest has been Lisa Pease, and the book is A Lie Too Big to Fail, and uh, that'll be on the website. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.